The title of tonight's talk is The Heart's Release, Abiding in the Immeasurables. The Brahmaviharas, what are also sometimes called the immeasurables, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic or empathetic joy, and equanimity. Each and all, perfectly natural, absolutely natural aspects of our humanness. Perfectly natural, and in that sense, ordinary. And at the same time, extraordinary. Extraordinary capacities of being. In their maturity, some of the qualities or capacities of a Buddha, a liberated being. As these qualities take deeper root and grow, flower and fruit, any one of us may experientially touch, know, the purity of metta or any of these immeasurable capacities, these immeasurable capacities of heart, of mind, at any moment, maybe sustaining for just the duration of the snap of a finger, or abiding more continuously, the heart's release, the liberation of the heart. Shakyamuni Buddha spoke about this as making one a truly spiritual person. This evening we'll explore some of the particulars of each of these immeasurable threads and also look at how they weave together, supporting, sustaining, and balancing each other, creating a tapestry of clear, caring, appropriate responsivity, this ability to respond rather than react to whatever life offers. With metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, the capacity to respond from the heart of immeasurable impartiality embracing impartially all sentient beings, not only those that we're close to in our lives, those that are useful for us in some way, those that are pleasing or amusing to us, but all sentient beings. This is from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. When the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you're part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. Metta, unconditional friendship, unconditional loving kindness. It's been called the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. The Buddha talked about how powerful and consequential it is to experience just one moment of a mind, of a heart, fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. Meaning a moment when the sense of separation, the sense of distinction, difference, any sense of discrimination has disappeared, is absent, even for just a second. This can be called love. Metta is the ground. It's the 
bed that all the other divine abidings spring from and that allows the whole of our practice to unfold from and into this core, this bed of kindness and patience in relation to ourselves and in relation to others. The Buddha spoke a lot about patience in various ways. And one of the things he said was, there's no higher rule than patience, no nirvana, no freedom higher than forbearance, no greater thing exists than patience, he said. Forbearance in this sense isn't the attitude of putting up with it or toughing it out with the kind of uh, hard-shelled endurance. Patience, forbearance in this case, is about the quality of a soft acceptance, softness and receptivity. This patience these qualities bring us to abide in our life, which of course includes our meditation practice, in a way that allows us to approach and receive, to open to, to be fully present with each moment, with a true openness, a respect, and an honoring of the moment, no matter what we're facing in our mind, in our heart, in our body, and no matter what's coming to us from the world around us. To forbear in this sense. It's a very strong, very clear place. The practice of metta is a very powerful way of introducing our heart, mind, patience, a clear way towards cultivating a patient, loving heart, and really coming to know in a, an experiential way that this is an advantage, that this is a great benefit in one's life. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya a story of Asariputra's lion's roar that really shows this quite clearly. It was just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat and the monks were dispersing for various duties and responsibilities to other places. One monk came to the Buddha and reported that as Shariputra was leaving, he tried to ask him a question. But Shariputra, without answering, had pushed him down to the ground and not even apologized. The Buddha summoned Shariputra to come before the assembly of monks and nuns and asked him if this was true. And Shariputra responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula, your son, when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed to Rahula, I also learned from it and I've tried to observe and practice that teaching. Lord, I've tried to practice like the earth. The earth is wide and open and has the capacity to receive, embrace, and transform. Whether people toss pure and fragrant substances such as flowers, perfume, fresh milk upon the earth, or toss unclean and foul-smelling substances like excrement or urine or blood, mucus, and spit upon the earth, the earth receives them all equally, without grasping, without aversion. 
No matter what you throw into the earth, the earth has the power to receive, embrace, and transform it. I try my best to practice like the earth, to receive without resisting, complaining, or suffering. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, could knock down a fellow monk and leave him lying there without apologizing. But it's not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, to push him to the ground and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have learned the lesson you offered to Rahula to practice like water. Whether someone pours a fragrant substance or an unclean substance into water, the water receives them all equally, without grasping, without aversion. Water is immense and flowing and has the capacity to receive, contain, transform, and purify all things. I've tried my best to practice like water. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might push a fellow monk to the ground and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I'm not such a monk. Lord, I've practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns everything. Pure, the pure as well as the impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful, without grasping or aversion. If you throw flowers or silk into it, it burns. If you throw old cloth and other foul-smelling things into it, the fire will accept and burn everything. It doesn't discriminate. Why? Because fire can receive, consume, and burn everything offered to it. I've tried to practice like the fire. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of looking, listening, and contemplating might push a fellow monk to the ground and go on without apologizing. Lord, I'm not such a monk. Lord, I've tried to practice to be more like air. The air carries all smells, good and bad, without grasping or aversion. The air has the capacity to purify, transform, and release. Lord Buddha, I've contemplated the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. A monk who does not practice mindfulness might push a fellow monk to the ground and go on without apologizing. I'm not such a monk. Lord, I'm like an untouchable child, with nothing to wear, with no title or any medal to put on my tattered cloth. I've tried to practice humility, because I know that humility has the power to transform. I've tried to learn every day. A monk who does not practice mindfulness can push a fellow monk to the ground and go on without apologizing. Lord, I'm not such a monk. As Shariputra continued to deliver his lion's roar, the other monk couldn't stand it any longer. And he bared his right shoulder and knelt down and begged for forgiveness. Lord, I have transgressed the Vinaya, the rules of monastic discipline. Out of anger, out of jealousy, I told a lie to discredit my elder brother in the Dharma. I beg the community to allow me to practice and to begin anew. In front of the Buddha and the whole Sangha, he prostrated three times to Sariputra. When Sariputra saw his brother prostrating, he bowed and said, I've not been skillful enough, and that's why I've created misunderstanding. I'm co-responsible for this, and I beg my brother to forgive me. And then he prostrated three times to the other monk, and they reconciled.
as we practice in specific ways towards cultivating, towards prompting loving-kindness, and as it develops and grows itself, we could say, through our practice of awareness, mindful awareness, our practice of immediate presence, there's a very natural unfolding, natural unfolding and ripening of patience, confidence, of fearlessness, trust, and happiness. Through the process of our practice, there's a natural opening and ripening of a loving heart. The various flavors of ill will, hostility, judgment, hatred, dislike, towards ourself, towards others, begins to subside. The practice and the development of metta weakens these states. Metta secludes, it cloisters, we could say, the heart, the mind, from anger, from fear. These strong energies that move through our mind and move through our body begin to weaken. They begin to fade under the strong light of a loving heart. The more moments of metta, the less moments of anger, worry, anxiety, grief, fear. It's just not possible to feel unconditional friendship, unconditional love, and fear simultaneously. Someone once asked Nisargadatta Maharaj, what can make me love? And he answered, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. I think that, essentially, every single one of us wants to be loving, to be able to be truly loving. And we've had, certainly, moments of being truly loving. And we know that when we're in this state, that there's this sense of not needing anything. It's this sense of having everything we need in those moments, as though we have gotten and get what we need in those moments. And all of it just comes and is as it is. And that's just enough. And so we begin the practice of loving-kindness, of unconditional friendship with ourselves and expand outward from here, eventually connecting, eventually encompassing every form of life on the planet, every form of life in the universe, those seen and unseen. In the process of the cultivation, the prompting of unconditional loving-kindness, is the purification of its opposites. And as you know in the classical teachings, these are called the far enemies of metta. Anger, jealousy, envy. All the various forms that ill will takes. Also with the process of developing and deepening unconditional love, there's a purification of what we call the near enemies. Or what looks like love or what are conditional habits of mind, sometimes mistakes for love, greed, attachment, possessiveness. There are many, many ways that we're conditioned culturally, for instance, around mistaking attachment, mistaking possessiveness and greed for love. Our media, our songs, our films, literature, all of these venues promoting confusion, promoting anguish, and telling us that love hurts. Love actually doesn't hurt. It's the near and far enemies that hurt. 
It's the near and far enemies that we suffer in, suffer with. Unconditional loving kindness, that love which needs no conditions met to, to be met, in this there's no suffering. And of course, it's essentially important that we don't pretend anything in our practice. That we don't act out of pretense in ways that we think we should if we're a really spiritual person. In our formal practice, and in our life as our practice, we have the opportunity, we have the opportunity to come face to face with and recognize the conditional states of mind that aren't metta, without identifying with them as who we are. Through this growing heart of metta itself, we can learn to accept that these states arise and pass. They come and go, just like all phenomena. This expanding capacity of our heart, of our mind, actually allows us to explore these conditional states of mind with less judgment, with much more spaciousness, to see them as they really are, to see these states of mind in their specific, particular characteristics, and to know the universal characteristics of these states, the impermanent, ephemeral nature of any, of all, actually, of these states. The suffering, the anguish present in becoming identified with these states as who we are. The unsatisfactory or suffering experience in trying to grasp on to any of these states and taking them, taking them on as who we are we begin to see the totally conditional, contingent, not-self nature of these states. The fact that mind states such as anger, fear, jealousy, possessiveness, attachment are conditional, contingent states, totally dependent on an infinity of conditions coming together in just that moment. And then there's anger, or fear, or jealousy, or attachment. This is a a poem that was written about a thousand years ago by a Buddhist nun, and it's, it's called Metta. If you develop love truly great, rid of the desire to hold and possess, that strong, clear love, untainted by lust, that love which does not expect to be repaid, that love which is firm but not grasping, enduring but not tied down, gentle and settled, diamond hard but not hurting, helpful but not interfering, cool and refreshing, giving more than taking, dignified but not proud, soft but not weak, that love which leads to enlightenment, then you will be washed of all ill will. This past year, I um, read a book called Life is So Good. It's a book about and by George Dawson, uh, who is still a 103-year-old man, a 103-year-old black man, who grew up in his family's farm in East Texas. And he he is the grandson of slaves, and he's still quite alive, and actually quite well. At the age of eight, 
George had to go to work to support his family, to help support his family, and so he never attended school and he never learned how to read. Until he decided to attend a literacy program actually just a few years ago at the age of 98. <laughs> it's an amazing, really an amazing, inspiring and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world, so to say, learned to read the world and to survive in it. At one point in the book, George is having a conversation with Richard, the man who wrote the book with George. And they're talking about how George, at the age of 101, is still living alone and doing just fine, as he says. And Richard speaks. He says, you aren't really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right. You figured that out. <laughs> yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while is all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody else instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take too much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can. And if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. For much of his life, George endured the deeply pervasive racism and segregation of the South. During the time when he was growing up in East Texas, they had the highest rate of lynchings there of any state in the Union. The book actually begins with George, at about eight years old, witnessing a lynching of a teenage boy that was kind of one of George's heroes. When he was 65 years old, George was doing yard work for a woman who left his lunch on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched her as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on a shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that there was for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected I would eat out on the porch with her dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room. But back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. But I weren't no animal, and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, when I was finishing my work, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch I left on the porch? 
I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, You don't need to come back anymore. I said, that's right, I don't need to. And George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think or do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. The Lion's Roar. George Dawson's Lion's Roar. The confidence the strength and straightforwardness that comes from a loving, compassionate, and wise heart. True love, metta love, comes from a knowing and intuitive understanding of our essential connectedness in an impersonal way, actually. Our essential connectedness or interconnectedness connectedness, whether we know the particular beings or not. The wisdom, the deep understanding of interconnectedness or interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, is metta itself. Our human heart, our human mind, is naturally, intuitively loving. Connection, metta, and Compassionate generosity are absolutely natural human capacities. So from this perspective, it's not about working to get something, working to attain something, but rather allowing our spiritual practice, be it vipassana or the practice of loving-kindness and compassion, to be loving-kindness, to be compassion itself. From this perspective, we can turn right around and face the heart of awareness itself and ask, who loves? Who cares? The thread of metta, the thread of karuna. There is metta. There is compassion. It's not mine. It belongs to no one. The understanding that our practice and any fruit of our practice is not an isolated, separate thing just for us becomes quite clear quite obvious to us over and over and over again that in fact we are practicing for the sake of all beings. And this is really the essence, this is really the ground of great compassion. Shanti Deva, the 8th century Buddhist monk that Joseph mentioned uh, the other night in his talk, who wrote a uh, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, talked about the Bodhisattva's vow to achieve awakening for the sake of all beings. We could call it the vow of compassion. He talked about it as being an inevitable consequence of the gradual development and maybe sudden eruption of unconditional love into one's life. In following the Buddha's advice to practice, 
to practice and learn to let go, to live with the way of things, to abide in the utter interconnectedness, the total contingency, the selfless nature of things. We open ourselves, as Shanti Davis says, to the, to the possibility of an unpredictable explosion of feeling. And our view of the world, including ourself, changes, is transformed, along with the way we feel about and relate to and in the world. Our heart opens to the beauty. It opens to the joy. And it also opens deeply to the anguish, to the suffering of others, which quite naturally prompts a spontaneous wish to lessen, to alleviate the suffering of others. The arising of metta and karuna begins to let us know that, in truth, we're not alone, but we're intimately interwoven into a seamless web of sentient life. In a long retreat like this, we have the opportunity to begin to see how our self-centeredness, the smallness, the pettiness of our self-centered fantasies can create a sense of isolation, a sense of separation. And I, I know for me, and I'm sure for many or most all of you, that when we spend time out in the natural world, the world of nature, we quite easily and quite naturally experience a sense of wholeness, a sense of connectedness the mirror of what's been called the sublime selflessness of the natural world, which helps to put things into a clear and a right perspective. And this is from Shantideva. Just as these arms and legs are seen as limbs of a body, why are embodied creatures not seen as limbs of life. With the awakening heart of metta, karuna, mudita, the notions of me and you, the fixed conceptual distinctions of me and you begin to dissolve begin to dissolve in relation to the way that we go about our life. How we relate to, how we relate in this life. And there's a spontaneous, empathetic response that begins to emerge quite naturally. An empathetic response to the sufferings and to the joys of life. And again from Shantideva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. About 15 years ago, one of my sons came to visit me when I was living in Nepal. And at one point during the visit, we were in Pokhara, which is a beach town at the foot of the Himalayas, and it's the point of departure for treks up into the Annapurna range. A lot of tourists come there, a lot of trekkers come there. So there are quite a number of places that cater to the trekkers. And we were at one of those places, an outdoor cafe, and we were having lunch. 
blaring loudly over the loudspeakers at this restaurant was Madonna singing, It's a Material World. (laughs) As we were sitting there watching Nepal go by, there was a little dirt street right in front of the restaurant, and Nepal was just living its life going by. A man came by. He is a man on a cart. He was a leper, and he had no legs. He was pushing himself along on his cart using his hands, actually using his knuckles, because he also had very few fingers. Coming in the other direction, on the same dirt street, right in front of where we were sitting, was a young calf. And they both stopped directly in front of us. And they looked at each other momentarily, and the calf started licking the man. He licked his face, and the man pulled off his very dirty cap, and the calf licked his head, which was shaven, although partly grown back, and he just had a little small braid on the top of his head. The calf licked his head, and the man took off his dirty, torn T-shirt, and the calf licked his neck and his chest and his back and his arms, and the man just gave himself to the calf and turned his body and the calf licked and licked, gave him this bath. And to be uh, quite practical about it, the man was very dirty and probably very salty, so the calf was getting some salt. And um, cows are are, uh, holy for Hindus, and he was getting not only a bath, but a holy bath. After the calf finished finished bathing him quite thoroughly, um, the man threw his arms around the calf and hugged him, held him for a number of minutes. And the calf very patiently stood there. Actually, it felt like he liked it. When the man unwrapped his arms, the calf went, continued on his way, and the man continued on his way. My son and I had, of course, stopped eating in this midst of this show, <laughs> and uh, as each of these sentient beings went their way, we turned and looked at each other, and tears were streaming down our eyes. The tears of compassion, the tears of mudita, the tears of metta. And still, Madonna continued to blare. It's a material world. It was really an amazing experience. (laughs) Understanding the scope of the immeasurable abidings through the relationship, be it an ideal relationship of a mother or a father to her or his child, I think can be quite useful. Metta is like the parent's relationship to the baby and the very young child. That complete unconditional love in the midst of constant care, in the midst of dirty diapers, in the midst of crying in the midst of smiles and play and affection. Unconditional love. Karuna is like the mother or father's relationship to the child as it gets older, as it moves into adolescence. A loving, heartful compassion for all of the struggles, the hurts, the ups and downs that occur. Mudita, the parent's relationship to the child as it matures and has independent successes and independent happinesses in the world. The parents taking delight, feeling happy themselves for the child's successes and happinesses. And lastly, upeka, equanimity. The child becomes an adult 
goes off in the world to live its own life in his or her own way. The mother and the father still having a strong, clear love and a deep, caring compassion and are still feeling happiness for the various successes and joys in their grown child's life. But there's a letting be, a balance of wise non-interference, a kind of cooling of attachment in the midst of a loving relationship between the parent and the child. Things are just as they are. As each of these capacities, these immeasurable threads, metta, karuna, mudita, emerges and grows and matures within us, the continually growing thread of equanimity, which can be called the thread of wisdom, weaves through, clarifies, brings a balance, supports, and helps to sustain all of the divine abidings. The immeasurable impartiality of the first three of the Brahma-viharas is really based in equanimity. The capacity to embrace, to hold all things, all of life impartially, just as it is in this moment. Equanimity guards metta and compassion from being dissipated in vain or unnecessary or useless involvements and quests. And it keeps metta from, and karuna from getting mired, getting lost, or spinning out in the sometimes seeming black holes of uncontrolled emotional states. The even-mindedness of equanimity gives metta an even, unchanging firmness, a loyalty, and it endows metta with the great virtue of patience, the patient forbearance that I spoke about earlier. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even unwavering courage, a fearlessness, and provides the calm and the firm hand and heart in the in and through the acts of compassion. And equanimity offers a balance to joy. When it sometimes gets so carried away with itself in its own exuberance that it doesn't see the whole of a situation, or doesn't sense the changing and sometimes painful feelings in another. The mind, heart, that has practiced and moved deeply into the sublime states of the divine abidings has a purity tranquility, firmness is collected and easily focused. There's an experiential understanding of the essential interconnectedness, the total contingency of all things. And there's a freedom from much of the selfishness, the self-centeredness that's so binding. All of this then provides a foundation from which to live our life. And the foundation from which the fully liberating insight into the nature, the empty, selfless nature of all phenomena can spring. As each of these threats, metta, karuna, mudita, Upeka, grow and weave together, 
creating a tapestry of clear, caring, appropriate responsivity in our lives. We live and practice more and more from a place of confidence, straightforwardness, and strength. The tremendous fullness of energy that the Buddha called the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power of his words was born out of loving care, great compassion, and deep wisdom. I'd like to close with a story. It's... um, part of an article out of the December 1999 Atlantic Monthly, and the title of the article is called On the Res, our easy res. And I have to read most of it because I, uh, the writing is quite, quite good and I don't want to paraphrase it. Sue Ann Marie Big Crow was born on March 15, 1974, at Pine Ridge Hospital on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Sue Ann grew up with her sisters in her mother's three-bedroom house in Pine Ridge. And even today, people talk about what a strict mother Chick Big Crow was. Her daughters always had to be in the house or the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wanderings and later cruising around in cars were out. In an interview when she was a teenager, Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was and is strongly anti-drug and alcohol. On the reservation, Chick has belonged for many years to the small but adamant minority that takes that stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything. So Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her until the grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drugs and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups, made a video urging her message in a stern and wooden tone, and as a high schooler traveled to distant cities for conventions of like-minded teenagers. I once asked Raw Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of her family, whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul Bradford said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. By coming out against drinking, I know that she flat out saved a lot of kids' lives. In fact, she even had an effect on me. It dawned on me that if a 16-year-old girl could have the guts to say these things, then maybe us adults should pay attention too. I haven't had a drink since the day she died. As strongly as Chick forbade certain activities, she encouraged the girls in sports. At one time or another, they did them all, cross-country, running, track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. She performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. Her mother and her sisters got tired of the sound. For a variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Sue Ann tended to get into foul trouble in basketball games as the referees rule strictly in tournament games. And Sue Ann was used to a more headlong style of play. In the district playoffs against the team from Red Cloud, Sue Ann scored 31 points. 
Some people who live in cities and towns near reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. In their voice you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When the team, when teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian, non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted. Their fans will feel unwelcome. The host gym will be dense with hostility. And the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school gymnasium in Lead, South Dakota. In the fall of 1998, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Lead to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the Lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries, a woo-woo-woo sound. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. After that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually the Thorpes line up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that senior Donnie DeCorey was the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some bumped into each other. Coach Zamiga, at the rear of the line, didn't know why they'd stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped on t- into the jump court the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances. She had completed in many powwows as a little girl, and the dance she chose is a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then she started to sing. Sue Ann began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate says. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted to the, to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering loudly. Of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. And the article ends with, the author saying, I cannot find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Ladd.
the lion's roar. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.